If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. slogan, Deeds Not Words, really tells us everything about the campaign, about the women who joined it, and what its objectives were. Deeds Not Words really is saying that we have talked about this long enough. This dialogue has been going right back to 1832, although not continuously. So we've had enough talk. Now we're going to uh, do something to make it happen. That was Diane Atkinson talking about the suffragettes. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Both of this week's episodes are themed around the battle for women's suffrage to mark the centenary of a proportion of British women being granted the vote in February 1918. In today's episode, you'll hear from Diane Atkinson about the stories of the most well-known campaigners for the vote, the suffragettes. She spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. I'm joined by Di Atkinson, who's the author of a new book, Rise Up Women. Thanks for joining me, Di. It's lovely to be here. Um, so, of course, 2018 marks the centenary of women over 30 getting the vote in Britain. And your new book, it charts the stories of almost 200 suffragettes who fought very, very hard to win that vote. Um, you start the story with the formation of the Women's Social and Political Union led by the Pankhursts in 1903. Can you give us a sense of what was to unfold over the next 15 years up until women finally got the vote in 1918? Well, the Women's Social and Political Union were founded in 1903 in Manchester at the home of Mrs. Pankhurst. Um, And although she's got this phenomenal reputation for being the leader of the suffragette movement, which of course she was, she had already been campaigning for the vote for perhaps up to 20 years. So she had been a moderate campaigner with the suffragists who were kind of quite ladylike and, and genteel in their approach. But in 1903, a whole range of circumstances led her to start a new organisation and to um, send a message to all campaigners and to the British public and the politicians and the media, really, that her campaign and their campaign was going to be different. And the, the slogan, Deeds Not Words, really tells us everything about the campaign, about the women who joined it and what its objectives were. Deeds Not Words really is saying that we have talked about this long enough. It's this conversation really, this dialogue has been going right back to 1832, although not continuously. So we've had enough talk. Uh, now we're going to uh, do something to make it happen and we will get the vote sooner 
rather than later. It will happen in our lifetime. That was the message she sent out to everybody. And people found that so appealing. Uh, women found that so attractive and flocked her organisation um, from its earliest days. I think something that your book is really good at highlighting is that this wasn't just a movement for middle class women. Um, can you give us some examples of the diverse types of women that were drawn to the movement and and why? Well, from the beginning, Mrs. Pankhurst wanted to recruit working class women into the movement. Um, her view was that working class women had the worst lives and their need was greatest. It was most urgent for them to be enfranchised as soon as possible. And so she was living in Manchester. She's living in quite a poor, relatively poor community in Manchester in Chalton. Um, and so she was interested and, and determined to get as many working women into the, the, the ranks of the WSPU as possible. And in 1905, she met a, a young woman called Annie Kenny, who was a mill worker from Oldham. And that was a turning point, certainly for Annie's life. And Annie was a mill girl. She had... Um, perhaps 15 years work experience um, and she was completely turned on to women's suffrage. She's very inspired by Mrs. Pankhurst or the Pankhurst family. They adopted her in a way and she was used as a sort of recruiter for working women. So Annie Kenny is very, very important and she actually eventually gets a very senior position within the WSPU. So Annie Kenny is a poster girl and one of their most important recruiters of working women. Of course, we think of the suffragettes breaking the windows, but can you tell us about some of the other forms that protests took? Well, First of all, uh, there was an awful lot of heckling at political meetings and then women would just be shouted down, bundled out and often sent to prison. Um, there's rather an amusing campaign called Pestering the Politicians. And that was rather amusing. I mean, it, it sounds a bit like stalking to us today, although it was very fun and it, was, um, it wasn't threatening or malevolent, but uh, suffragettes would find out where cabinet ministers were playing golf or whether they were going to church or they were going away for the weekend and they would turn up perhaps three or four or five of them and they would just follow them everywhere and they would whenever they had a chance approach them politicians didn't have this personal security that politicians have now so they could actually go up and sort of buttonhole them and say when are you going to give women the vote and goodness sake Mr Askins when are you going to give women the vote so they would regularly hide in, in the bushes on golf courses and when cabinet ministers were teeing up for their shot they would jump out and say Mr so-and-so, Mr. Asquith, when are you going to give women the vote? So they were real nuisance. It was quite funny. Um, they'd follow them out of church. They'd follow them into church to try and go and sit next to them. It was very, very irritating for the politicians. Um, it wasn't threatening or physically dangerous at all, but it did make them um, really very unpopular, as you can imagine. And there's some really fun um, sort of silent cinema scenes unfolded when they actually climbed up the castle wall and they popped their head into the dining room window and where Mr. Asquith was having his dinner one weekend and said, oh, Mr. Asquith, when are you going to give women the vote? And they'd actually bothered to hire a boat. Um, they would they rode round the moat of this castle. They had climbing equipment and they climbed up the wall and was popped the head in through the window where Asquith was dining and um, caused a tremendous sort of um, upset. And they quickly shim sh sort of shimmied down the rope, got back into the boat, rode round the other side of the moat and disappeared into the bushes. So some lovely sort of slapstick scenes of comedy interspersed with some of these rather more serious styles of protest, which I'll come on to in a moment. They strike me as, you know, giving the press a field day. 
So the suffragettes were really, really good propagandists. They were excellent. They were very inventive. They're very creative. They're very good at written propaganda. They're very good at writing leaflets saying why we want the vote and why we're militant and what women want and how we mean to get it. So they're very good at handing out that kind of material for everybody to understand. Uh, visually, they're very exciting. They organise large sort of spectacular processions and demonstrations through London and the major cities. Um, so they're very inventive and they're very creative at making the public sort of stop, look and listen to them and their message. Could you tell us about some of the more violent forms of suffrage protest? Well, um, going to Parliament to see politicians should have been a peaceful occasion, but police manhandling and violence was so extreme, um, it sometimes would end in a riot. And when the... um, There was one particular example of this on November the 18th, 1910, became known as Black Friday. It was such a dreadful experience of about 150 women who were being pushed and shoved and assaulted by the police and stood no chance of getting anywhere near the um, House of Commons because they wanted to go in and talk to politicians. So it was sort of, it was like hand-to-hand fighting, really. It was a running riot with a vast police presence, lots of plainclothes policemen doing all sorts of unspeakable things. And at the end of it all, there were 150 statements and about 40 of the women who were describing their experiences talked about sexual violence and the rest was straightforward being crushed against railings by police horses being kicked and beaten pushed to the ground and slapped and hair pulled and clothing sort of disarranged so that was a particular dark day for the suffragettes mrs pankhurst decided that was too dangerous for her members she didn't want anybody to be killed on one of those protests. So she said, we will wage guerrilla warfare against this government until they give us the vote. And that signaled the beginning of pretty uh, direct vandalism where women were being arrested immediately, but also much more underground activities, um, vandalising reservoirs, vandalising property, cutting the telephone wires between the major cities, and of course, burning down empty houses, attacking sports facilities, um, attacking works of art. Uh, That was very prevalent in 1914, for instance. And of course, even burning down churches, which is quite a step forward, quite a quite a decision for lots of those members to take. That, that was really one of the most difficult decisions I think a lot of the women had to take was, were they going to go and burn down an empty church or not? And, and actually quite a lot of them did. And um, what was the the underlying thought behind these kind of arson attacks and violent attacks? Was it that they just simply didn't have any other option or was it purely to move things along quicker? Well, it's very much an emotional response and a strategic response to what's going on in prison. Because, of course, suffragettes in the outset were being arrested and going to prison. And they were eventually going to go on hunger strike because they're being treated as common criminals. And they said, yes, but we're political prisoners. And so um, they started going on hunger strikes and we, we won't um, we won't do prison work. We won't wear prison clothing. We are political prisoners. And eventually the government start to force feed them. That starts in 1909. And the stories of the experience of being force fed in prison are going to oxygenate a campaign which is already pretty um, excited and excitable and exciting. 
And so what's going on in prison really kind of oxygenates the campaign outside and awful stories of torture, which is what force feeding was. These sorts of stories, which are an experience as women come out and talk, meet, meet members in big occasions and describe what ha- what's happening to them. That's the, that's the catalyst, which is going to make some women step up, go forward and do more militant acts. So prisons are very important in, in fueling the ongoing arson campaign. Of course, it's in response to the government's intransigence. And all of these factors together mean that militancy is going to persist and accelerate in the period up to the First World War. So stories of the treatment of suffragettes in prison and the remarkable violence that they came up against um, from police, how were they received by the wider public? Did people feel sympathetic towards the suffragettes or did they think, you know what, if you're going to campaign for this, this is what you deserve? Well, I think the press was quite hostile. I think most members of the public were were pretty, well, at best indifferent and at worst hostile. Um, Most people didn't want women to have the vote and that included a lot of women too. Um, But it's really when there's the the constant um, drip feed of information about the torch of women in prison, that's a very powerful concept. And public opinion starts to be somewhat critical of the force feeding of women. And it's that moment when the government actually abandoned force feeding and they rushed through an act of parliament, uh, which becomes known as the Cat and Mouse Act, which in the end um, suspends force feeding. Women are allowed to starve. Um, They're not force-fed. Then they're released from prison on a special license um, and they're released to a a family member or relative. And they're supposed to sit there, gain weight, recover their health and wait to be re-arrested by the police to go back into prison and carry on their sentence. And of course, that backfires completely because the suffragettes manage to escape from where they're recovering and they go around the country committing more militancy. So that strategy only actually lasted for about six months and the government reintroduced force feeding. But generally speaking, I think people thought the suffragettes, if they were roughly handled at police demonstrations, they thought, well, you know, if that's what you do, if that's how you behave, this is what will happen to you. So generally, the British public are pretty unsympathetic. And towards the end, when they see newspapers full of stories of burnt houses, burnt sports facilities, burnt grandstands, um, football grounds attack, that kind of thing, and of course churches burnt down, then the public actually are openly hostile and really rather dangerous. Speaking of public and press hostility, the inside covers of your book are plastered with cartoons from the time depicting the suffragettes. And some of these are just absolutely shocking. So there's um, one in which baby's crying, saying mummy's a suffragette. Another asks, how can women come in the House of Parliament when they're afraid of mice? Um, Can you tell us about some of the ways in which the suffragettes' opponents portrayed them? Well, there were a number of stereotypes that were uh, peddled right from the beginning. Um, Suffragettes um, were often portrayed as, um, as mewing kittens or shrieking cats. Um, cackling geese was a favourite. Sometimes they were portrayed as um, really like men in drag. They often had a lot of facial hair. They were quite muscly. They wore masculine clothes. So it's really uh, suffragettes were, were masculine women. Um, and they would 
you know, the, the, these images are being um, recycled all the time and are really very popular with, with the buying public. And suffragettes were also going to be um, accused of breaking up the home, neglecting their children, abandoning their husbands, and generally causing domestic chaos. And this was something that was a recurrent feature of a lot of those cartoons. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So really, it took a lot of bravery to um, to become a suffragette. Yes, it was. It was. Uh, it was a bit like sort of a coming out moment, really. If you're going to kind of take this organisation and join it and be part of it, you really needed to have supportive parents. You really needed to have your father not mind remotely to give you permission or, or to prevent you rather from going ahead and doing this kind of thing. So it was about parental support. It's about wider family support too. Um, if your husband was opposed, well, then life could be very difficult because he could throw you out and there'd be no redress. I mean, people would think that would be a reasonable thing for a husband to do if he had a suffragette. And certainly a number of marriages did uh, have rocky times and crumbled because the wife's uh, wife's behavior as a suffragette was not acceptable to the husband. A number of engagements were broken off. Um, and generally, um, girls sometimes were, were disowned by their family. So it was a really difficult decision. And there were lots of sacrifices to be made if you're going to take this, this cause and go with it. So after all the struggle and sacrifice and hardship, in 1918, um, the Representation of the People Act was passed, which gave women over 30 the vote. What did this mean? What Was it a watershed moment? Because it didn't mean votes for everyone, did it? No, it didn't. But it was a hell of a lot more than the suffragettes had ever imagined they would get the first um first tranche of, of enfranchisement. I mean, at first, they were prepared to accept votes for about half a million women because their thesis was once you broke the sex barrier with suffrage, it would come quite quickly and incrementally. So it was breaking the sex barrier that was the critical thing. Um, so when women did get the vote in 1918 and the first general election is held in December 1918, 8,400,000 women actually go to vote. So it's an extraordinary breakthrough. Um, of course, there's disappointment that it's not equal suffrage and you don't have men and women voting at the same age, but it was a massive step forward and um, you know, never in their wildest dreams, really, I think at the beginning of the campaign, would they have imagined such a large number of women would have got the vote in the first instalment. So it was, it was huge. And for you, how much do you put down to the suffrage the suffragettes campaign there were obviously a lot of other factors that played into the passing of the act perhaps you could um weigh up some of those for us well of course the first world war is critical um the suffragettes have kind of put their campaign on hold to um, throw themselves into the war effort they said we, we 
we're going to come back to that, but we must support the government in the war effort and make sure we win this war. So the war puts everything in a kind of a limbo, certainly for the militants. Um, women's war work is critical, and the government cannot ignore the importance that women uh, the important role they played in actually fighting the war on the home front. They stepped into men's shoes and did every kind of work that men were doing. Um, the suffragettes had pushed the, you know, the, had pushed the demand for the vote right to the top of the political agenda. Now, that's not to say that the moderate campaigners were irrelevant. They were important. But the suffragettes were so good at headline grabbing kind of bad behavior that you know, they were the people who the public were talking about, albeit negatively. They were the ones who were getting the publicity. And also, there was so much kind of vandalism and violence and, and damage and destruction all over the country, smashed windows, uh, public buildings attacked, you know, so much damage reported all around the country that the thought of the suffragettes starting up again and gearing up again for another campaign, if women were refused, with all the moral high ground they could take from that, I mean, it was it was not to be born, really. It was not to be considered. And I think the factors of the war and how high they were on the political agenda before the war and the fact that the suffragettes had been so effective and powerful and frightening before the war broke out, no politician wanted to return to that. Also, the political landscapes changed. Um, Asquith's no longer in power. Some of the old sort of dinosaurs who had negative, hostile, anti-women suffrage views, they've gone. And the coalition government is much broader. It's much more reasonable. And it finds itself, you know, happy to allow this reform to go through. And, and you know, that that makes everybody happy, really, except, of course, the diehards when they would never be happy with one woman getting the vote. But generally speaking, it's a different time. It's a different place. And of course, one of those staunch political opponents that, um, that you spoke about there was Winston Churchill. Oh, yes, he was uh, a, a, an anti uh, right from the beginning. Although, curiously, his wife Clementine was sympathetic. She would go to suffragette meetings. She was not an activist, of course, but she was interested enough to go to their meetings. I'd like to think the kind of conversations those two had over dinner, because he couldn't stand them. He absolutely hated and detested them. But his wife Clementine was, was, uh, was pro-women suffrage. And when the leaders were being tried for conspiracy in 1912, she went along to some of to, to see some of their court appearances. So, no, she's really quite quite strong about this one. A lot of people will, of course, have heard of the Pankhursts, but you document so many other f- fascinating figures in this book. Could you tell us about some of the suffragettes who we perhaps maybe haven't heard of that have really remarkable stories? Well, there's one wonderful woman who was an EastEnder. She was the shirt uh, a machinist. She went in a factory and her husband and two children. She's called Minnie Bulldog. And she's the woman who's responsible for starting the first WSPU branch in London, right down in Canning Town in the docks, one of the poorest parts of the country. She's very important for recruiting our local women. And she's very um, effective as a speaker. And she's got a really important career as an organiser and a campaigner. There's a remarkable woman in Preston called Edith Rigby, who is a really interesting woman. She's quite uh, flamboyant. She's quite single-minded. Her husband was a doctor. She's got very strong opinions. She's very keen to help um, local women get the vote. Um, She's 
wonderfully um, independent in her thought. She's very unconventional in her opinions on lots of things. And her dress was unconventional. She used to make her own clothes. She didn't wear corsets. She wore sandals all the time. She smoked Turkish cigarettes. And she's, we'd look at her now and think, what a bohemian. But actually, she was a very fierce campaigner and a pretty dedicated militant. Um, I mean, there are so many, to, so many to think of and talk about and choose from. It's hard to know where to start. Oh, there's a marvelous woman called May Billinghurst. Okay, well, May Billinghurst was um, paralyzed. She couldn't walk. She's been paralyzed, I think, probably from polio when she was five. And she was an active campaigner. She went whizzing around the um, London constituencies at by-elections and, and campaigned as hard as anybody. And yet, it's a woman who was so clearly vulnerable um, was picked on by the police on Black Friday, who tipped her out of her wheelchair and took the valves out of the tyres of her wheelchair and, and let them down. And they singled her out for some really horrible treatment. And it was shocking. It was shocking now, it was shocking then. But um, there's a very interesting woman called Kitty Marion, who is a, a musical star. And her reason for coming to the suffragettes was the experience of sexual harassment. Um, and she lost lots of jobs in her musical career because she wouldn't get onto the casting couch with the director. And um, she thought women's suffrage would do something about that. So that's why she became such a, a keen campaigner. And of course, her career completely collapsed because of her identification of the suffragettes. So she's a marvellous one too. Um, up in the north of England in Leeds, Mary Gawthorpe was a school teacher and she was a brilliant speaker. She was another poster girl for the WSPU. Uh, she's a brilliant organiser, travelling around the country and really a very effective public speaker. Uh, she was very good at dealing with hecklers. And once at a meeting, um, outdoor an outdoor meeting, somebody threw a big cabbage at her to knock her over because suffragettes used to get a lot of physical and verbal abuse when they were speaking in public. Um, luckily, she caught this massive cabbage and threw it straight back at the man who'd thrown it to her, at her. So, you know, she's very brave and very clever and, and became, as I said, a poster girl for the WSP. But all around the country, there are you know, there are perhaps half a dozen stories, women in each community who are going to make all different kinds of contributions. And I've, I've put a lot of those in my book. Ironically, the first woman to take her seat in Parliament, Nancy Astor, had not been involved in the campaign for women's suffrage at all. Um, how did those who'd fought so hard for it feel about that? Well, they were... They were very pleased to have the first woman in Parliament. And yes, Aunt Nancy Astor hadn't been remotely interested in women's suffrage or any women's issues um, before she became MP, but they were pleased. And um, I found a lovely story, which I use in my book. When she, The day after she's elected in Plymouth in 1919, she comes up to London to go to stay at Clifton with her family. And as she's changing platforms at Paddington, um, a there's lots of people there to look at her. People are absolutely fascinated by her. They get to gawp at her. It's such a strange idea to have a woman politician. So they go and look at her and she's rather glamorous and rather beautiful and, and very wealthy. And people are fascinated by her. And a, a, a group pushed their way to the front. A group of women pushed their way to the front. We don't know their names, which is very tantalizing, but they step forward. They they're ex-suffragettes who've been to prison, they've been on hunger strike, they've been force-fed. So typical of them to get to cl as close to her as they can. And one of them gives her a badge, uh, one of their suffragette badges, and they were proud to present it uh, to her. And one of them said, this is the beginning of our era. I am glad to have suffered for this. 
And I think that's such a moving story. Um, and I just wish I knew the woman who'd said it. But the fact that all those women experienced so much difficulty and pain, but there they were prepared to salute her achievement and, and look to her to start to make a difference. I think that's a remarkable scene. Towards the end of the book, you chart what you call the afterlives of the suffragettes. So what happened to these women after 1918? What kind of things did they turn their energies to? Well, some of them just retired from the fray. They'd retired from politics. They'd been through the war. And I think some of them thought, well, we're, we're done now. We've, we, we've got the vote and it's time to go back to a slightly more steady life. Um, others who were innately political got involved in other campaigns. Some women got involved in feminist campaigns like Equal Pay. We still haven't got that one. Um, and um, ending the marriage bar whereby women had to leave their certain jobs when they got married in teaching and nursing, for example. Um, some of them got involved in the peace movement. Um, women were a very important um, constituency uh, pushing the peace movement in the aftermath of the horror of the First World War. Uh, some women became um, communists um, and some of them get very involved in kind of Labour Party politics. Um, some of them were animal rights campaigners. Um, many of them took up theosophy. So many of them go off in all different directions um, and pursue politics and religion and world peace on so many different levels. And finally, um, to conclude, 100 years on, how do you think we should remember these women and the fight that they had to win the vote? I think we should to try and get a handle on how remarkable they, they were. I think we should think about, you know, what we would do if we if we read some of those stories. We have to think step back and think, well, would we do that? You know, we would might join an organization. We might go to a peaceful protest. But then the situations always escalated and we'd have to think how much we how far we would have gone and i think we need to remember that when we look back at the enormous sacrifices and the incredible um, acts they performed and and um, pain they suffered so that we can go out and vote i think everybody should vote for example i think we should if if people forget to vote or don't bother to vote i think it's i think it's wrong actually i think it's morally wrong i think considering what these women um, endured, we should vote. Um, whether we think it's a wasted vote or not, I don't think. I don't think that matters. But I think the act of voting is so symbolic, and I think that's another way of remembering what they did. I think also some of their ideas and their courage. We should take some of those up, and we should fight some of the campaigns that still need to be resolved. There's still plenty of work to do, hundred years later, after women got vote. Well, Di, thank you very much for your time. And if people want to read more about these incredible stories, uh, your book, Rise Up Women, is out now. Um, so thank you. Thank you. So that was Diane Atkinson. Diane has also written a piece for our February edition, which is a women's suffrage special and is on sale now. Look out for it in all good retailers and on many digital formats. Well, that's about it for today, but please do rejoin us on Thursday when we'll be speaking to June Purvis about the causes and legacy of the 1918 Act. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. 
For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.